0: So I encourage you, whatever means necessary, to have Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15 open. And uh, we will enter into God's word in a moment. And uh, we are actually, this Sunday, uh, today we are concluding our sermon series in the book of Titus. And uh, next week we're going to begin making our way through a few psalms that will guide us through the rest of the summer. But uh, this week we finish our series in Titus as God gives grace to us as we grow together as a young church family. Uh, uh, in the faith uh, seeking to grow in accord with God's design for his church as given to us in his word. Would you pray with me? God, we open your word now and we ask your mercy to be upon us. We ask that you would humble us and even convict us where that is needed. And we ask that you would mercifully correct us and ask that you would mercifully comfort and build us up by your word and by the power of the gospel at work within us as we see the gospel clearly presented in this chapter and how it pushes us towards showing love and care and mercy towards those around us. So, Lord, we ask that you you now work through your word in our midst. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is good to be back with you. Uh, For those of you that are unfamiliar, my family and I have been on vacation the last couple of weeks. We were down south visiting... Uh, loved ones, and we had a nice time uh, traveling down there, but like so many, it is good to be back home it's good to sleep in our own beds. Um, one thing that, that was fascinating, though, as we were down south, and, and I'd be curious if you've ever experienced this too, when you're visiting home, whenever you're visiting a place that you are familiar with that you haven't been in a while, sometimes it's nice, it's, it's even sentimental to be able to drive around and see sites that you haven't gotten to see in a long time. Some of us are extra sentimental, and and you're like me, where you're driving around after being gone for two weeks, and you're like, oh, wow, situate has changed so much while I was gone. But it is nice to be able to see familiar sights and to be reminded to get our bearings yet again. Now, one site that we drove past while we were down south was quite familiar, but I had forgotten it. And it is uh, a large, well, not large, but let's say noticeable compound that is on a state highway. Imagine a highway like Route 3, a split highway, uh, four lanes, two going each way. And cars driving 60, 70, 80, 100, 120 miles an hour on it. And on one side of it is this um, white church building, maybe a little smaller than ours. And then on another side of the highway are these living quarters that look like they can see a few, or not see a uh, uh, house, a few dozen people. And now the interesting thing about it is that also protecting this building and these living quarters are some high iron fences, and it just has this kind of creepy, odd vibe to it. In fact, we, my friends and I, when we were in college, we wondered if perhaps it was some kind of cult. Now, I'm not going to tell you the name of it, uh, because I don't want to disparage it, and I'm not familiar with its identity, but the name would seem to lend itself to at least being something fairly creepy. There were rumors that there were tunnels that ran under the highway that connected the living quarters and the worship space, and I don't know, but it's just interesting. And it got me to thinking, you do not want to be in a cult with me. You don't want to live in the same place with me. I am a strange bird. Many of you would probably agree with this, having never even spent much, having never lived under the same roof as me, but you would agree, yeah, I don't think I want to live in a place with Stephen. But the thing is that, that I observed about this place and the high walls and all of this is that it did force me to ask a question, and I think it forces us all of us to ask a question, and that is, how do we interact with, how do we engage with the non-Christian world around us? This religious group, whatever they were, had taken the option of total detachment, total pushing away and isolating and living amongst themselves and not going outside The outside world. If I'm a strange bird and you don't want to live under the same roof with me, we have some form of response. We have some option here where we are going to be engaged in and living in our world if we're not going to totally detach. So, what does it look like for us to be living in and engaged with our world? Well, Titus 3 helps us to walk through this. In fact, as we look through Titus chapter 3, we're going to see, by God's mercy to us, that the power of the gospel at work in us will compel us towards uncommon care for our non-Christian neighbors and away from foolish conflicts. Let me say that again. The power of the gospel at work in us must compel us as a church towards uncommon care for our non-Christian neighbors and away from foolish conflicts. Follow along as I read Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. The Apostle Paul writes, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. May God write the truths of his word upon our hearts, dear church family. So how will we engage with the non-Christian world around us? In this passage, I think we see three things. We see our charge, our ability, and our warning. Our charge, our ability, and our warning. First, in verses 1 to two, one and 2, we see a charge that the Apostle Paul gives to us. This is a charge that is care towards our non-Christian world. This is in verses 1 and 2. When I was a kid... I, I wanted to be a pirate. I loved the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. And one of the places that struck me as kind of fascinating about the Pirates of, Car- of, the, of, Caribbean, Pirates of the Caribbean movies was uh, the Isle of Tortuga. If you're familiar or you remember Tortuga, it was a place just of absolute lawlessness, anarchy, revelry, uh, all, all the evils and the vices of this world. And, these, and it was just a pirate hotbed. And I thought, wow, that's an interesting place. Now... The Isle of Tortuga, full of all of its lawlessness and all of its debauchery, is kind of like what Crete was, which is where Paul was writing this letter to, to the churches in Crete. So if you place, picture a place where anarchy reigns, where government leaders and authorities over the people are mocked and scoffed and, and ridiculed and have no real sway or actually no real importance in the life of the people, Then you read what Paul writes in verses 1 and 2, and it looks a little different to us. Paul, writing to a people living in a lawless place, tells them, remind them to be submissive to rulers and to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. That's interesting. That is countercultural to what the church in Crete knew experientially based in their world. You know, it's interesting as I thought about this passage, I realized that it's, frankly, easier to obey the rules when you agree with the rules. When I was a child, it was easier to be obedient to my parents when I thought that what they were wanting me to do was good. It's easier for a student to obey their teachers. It's easier for an employee to, uh, to uh, obey their boss. It is easier for citizens to obey their government when they actually agree with what their government is doing. But verse 1 confronts our spirit of disobedience. Christian, did you know that when you are paying taxes, you are not first and foremost being obedient to Uncle Sam, but you are actually being obedient to God your Father? Did you know that even when we adhere to our town's uh, lawn watering guidelines, that we are actually watering the soil of our own faith as we are submissive to the rulers and authorities that are over us? Now, Here's what's interesting to me, or here's what gets me about verses 1 and 2. So he says, be submissive to rulers and authorities, verse 1. And then verse 2, he says, speak evil of no one to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. The thing that's interesting to me about verse 2, or the thing that catches me and causes me to stumble, is the words no and all. So look at verse 2, speak evil of no one. I could do well with speak evil of some people, speak evil of this select group of people, but speak evil of no one, or to show perfect courtesy toward all people. I, I, I like showing perfect courtesy towards some people, but all people? What are you getting at here, Paul? Well, as I was preparing this sermon, I was even convicted over it. You know, as I was preparing this and, and was going to call us towards obedience to our government, I had a few lines, a few jokes about the, the nanny state and Taxachusetts and the ordinances that our, our government might put over us that we laugh about or that we roll our eyes about. But I decided not to use those because I realized that those were not speaking well of our government. May we help one another to walk in obedience and in submission to our government that God has put over us. Just because it's a public figure on social media, it is not appropriate to, despair, to, to share that disparaging meme about him or her. Or another one, when it talks about um, speaking evil of no one. I don't know about you, but there are times where I love to vent. Whether it be to my wife Amanda or whether it be to a friend. Sometimes you just need to vent, right? Well, may our venting have a redemptive tone to it. Sure, there are times where we just need to get things off of our chest. But we need to be careful that venting doesn't become, I just want to speak evil of the person that I am venting about. So lay it all out, but then pursue a redemptive tone and seek the good of those that we are venting about. Now, I want to pause here because it's possible that you might be thinking, okay, be submissive to rulers and authorities. Okay, Stephen, what about the times when rulers and authorities would cause us to or would try to get us to do things or embrace things or support things that God's word would prohibit us from? Well, I believe that a good rule of thumb for the church, for Christians, is to obey the, the, the government authorities that God has put over us until the government tells us to disobey God. So an example of this, of course, with God as first priority and the authorities that he's placed over us as second priority, an example of this that we saw play out over the last year was pandemic guidelines. We, as a church, sought to be faithful to uh, adhere to the guidelines that the state gave us, and we were willing and prepared and seeking to joyfully do so as long as those guidelines did not hinder us from being able to gather to worship. Should they have eventually said, okay, we're closing churches down, or should they have said churches are closed and they're not reopening a while, then we would have had to have conversations, and we would have had to explore some form of civil disobedience and saying we must obey God over man, and so we're going to gather. We're going to try to do so safely, but we're going to gather to worship our Lord God. So thankfully, by God's grace, we didn't have to have those conversations, and we sought to joyfully do uh, follow along with the guidelines as our government gave us. So yes, there are times where fallen sinful governments and fallen sinful worlds will lead people or will, 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 will pass laws or ordinances or whatever that force the church to disobey. But generally, our heart disposition ought to be one of obedience and thanksgiving for the government that God has put uh, over us. Now, there's not just a negative here, okay, be submissive to rulers, don't speak evil of anyone, all this. Or at least, I don't know, maybe it's weird about me that I find it to be a negative. Um, But there's also positive here. There's a positive direction, a positive tone at the end of verses 1 and 2. You know, at the end of verse 1, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Verse 2, be gentle, show perfect courtesy towards all people. Maybe a good perspective for us leaving the house each morning is, how can I leave today with, an at, with, with a posture and with a prepared heart to do good to those whom the Lord would bring across my path. In fact, maybe a good prayer for you this week would be verses 1 and 2. God, help me to show courtesy towards those you would bring across my path. You might be saying, I don't even know what that looks like. How do I go about my, my day seeking to, to uh, be ready for every good work? We'll pray that. And then buckle up as God will hit you with opportunity after opportunity as the day day and the week passes along. It's like the prayer, right? Never pray for patience, right? Because then every opportunity will come. I say that tongue-in-cheek. It's good to pray for patience, just so we're clear. But look at the end of verse 2 as we talk about showing perfect courtesy towards all people. This produces questions. What about those whom I disagree with? What about those who are perhaps a part of the LGBTQ community? community how well do i show courtesy towards those whom i might have disagreement with how about those who who uh, uh, are on the front lines of marching in black lives matter or those who say blue lives matter or those who are your in-laws or your boyfriend or girlfriend of your teenager or your 20 something who you just can't stand there are opportunities in our lives to show courtesy towards those whom we are not naturally inclined to do so And what Paul is saying is that this is an outflow of the work of the gospel in us. It does not mean that we agree with everything about it, but it shows a basic human level decency and courtesy towards those whom the Lord has given to us as neighbors. You know, another one that comes across my mind is how well do we show courtesy towards the unnamed, the face we don't see of the customer service agent that we are speaking with on the phone. I have an insurance company that I am really, really frustrated with right now and i have a phone call with them tomorrow pray that i would show courtesy and and that i would show gentleness in that and i imagine you have those in your life too next time the internet goes out next time you're having trouble and you got to call customer service and it sounds like the person answering the phone lives on the other side of the world and english isn't their first language shoot for some courtesy remember the early days of the shutdown and the pandemic. Everyone was working and schooling from home. Traffic was down exponentially. One day I drove from Cohasset to downtown Boston in like 36 minutes. I probably should have read First Titus uh, 3, 1, and 2 there about obeying traffic laws. But um, anyway, that's not the point. But citizens and, and or cities across the country and the world were reporting the lowest air pollution numbers that they had seen in decades as commerce and as, as the, the world buzzing and humming and going about its business had slowed down, the pollution was decreasing. I realized that one thing that we see in Titus 3 is that our world has enough angry attitudes about it. We're polluted with bitterness, strife, hostility, malice. But may we be a people that seek to purify these polluted attitudes, starting with our own, and seeking to care for one another. Just as a matter of point, parents, grandparents, may I encourage you that your kids won't walk away from the faith because they went away to college and read Nietzsche, or because they started to ascribe to certain aspects of critical race theory. They are far more likely to walk away from the faith because they see Christians who profess one thing from their mouth but they go about life in an unkind manner. May we be mindful of these things and seek to show care towards those around us. Now, having said that, you probably hear this and say, oh, Stephen, that's a challenge for me. And I say that because it's a challenge for me. So what is our ability to show care towards those around us? Well, our ability is found in Christ and in the power of the gospel at work within us. Look at verse 3. Paul, having given the instructions of verses one and two, then says in verse three, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and in envy, hated by others and hating one another. For some reason, that last line really sums up our day and age, right? Hated by others and hating one another. Just hate, 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 hate. Yeah, that's the world we live in. And we do a great job, I think, today and in, in our day and age of loving those we agree with, but we do a terrible job of loving those we disagree with. We don't even mean, and, and we have to be careful in thinking through what this means. Our world believes a lie that love means that we have to give entire and whole endorsement to everything about what another one believes. But that's another topic for another day. But you don't have to, di- you don't have to agree with everything that, uh, that another individual holds dear in order to love them. But there's a psychological uh, uh, aspect of this, something that's deep, uh, 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 deep within our bones as human beings. I read a fascinating column just in the last few weeks uh, by Damon Linker, where he he was writing about the, the strong political polarization of our day and age, and how we we are uh, the, the political sides are united in some ways by what they believe, but they're even far more united psychologically in their opposition towards or or their just outright uh, hatred towards those on the other side of the spectrum. And I don't know whether Linker realized it or not, but he was describing the condition of the human heart in verse 3. So how do we address this heart where we are so grieved by those around us and we can't stand them even to the point where we would push them away and isolate ourselves away from them? How do we address this? The solution is not how we address it, but it is how God has addressed it in us through the power of the gospel. Look at verse 4. Paul having described how we once were foolish, disobedient, led astray, all of these things. Then in verse 4 he says, but when the goodness and loving and kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. This past week I was trying to clean my glasses. They had smudges all over them. And I had the little bottle of glasses cleaner and it was basically empty. There was just a little left in it. And I had my glasses off and I was trying to tip the little straw that, that, that you spray the glasses cleaner out. I was trying to tip it onto the side of the bottle where... The the remaining glasses cleaner was in it, but I couldn't tell where it was because I had my glasses off. I was all smudged, and it dawned on me that this was a great illustration of our hearts and our understanding of ourselves in our day and age. Here's what I mean: we can put signs in our yards that say "Love," uh, 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 "All you need is love," or "Love is the most important thing that we can show one another." And you and, and we can talk about the need for compassion for one another, and we can talk about and we can believe that this is the solution for the ills that our society faces today. But the problem is we don't know how to show it. We have the solution, but we don't know how to find it. And I imagine that as you think about those whom you disagree with, whether it be politically, whether it be in life decisions, in worldview, whether it be in education, philosophy, or whatever it may be, you have people in your life or in your world whom you are just staunchly and strongly disagree with, even to the point where you would say that, 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 that they are wrong to the level where they are harming and are a detriment to the world around us. And yet you don't know how to fix your heart towards them. You diagnose the problem. But you don't know how to get that last remaining water out of the bottle because you can't see quite where it is. Paul shows us. Paul says the solution is not in ourselves, but is in giving us eyes to see the work of God in Christ in giving us new birth. In verse 5, Paul introduces the term regeneration, which is a renewal or a washing. This is a supernatural work of God whereby He makes us new. So look at this, follow along. Verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. This is our default, where we think that I do works of my own that make myself pleasing in the sight of God, or make myself acceptable in his sight. Paul says, no, this is not how we enter into the presence of God. This is not how we are acceptable in his sight. But no, he saved us according to his own mercy, and then he describes it as by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. This language of renewal, this language of washing, I understand you guys had quite a heat wave while I was out of town. And I don't know about you, but one of my favorite things in the summer is not the heat wave, but it is the cool shower that passes through with the cold front that wipes the heat wave out and moves it away. And so where our souls feel as if it's 100 degrees outside with 90% humidity, and we feel that we are choking Amidst our own inability to muster the love for others that, that God's Word calls us to, Paul says, "You are exactly right in that con, in, in that diagnosis of your state, but regeneration is the means whereby the cold shower of God's grace watches over you and gives you washes over you and gives you new life. And so, regeneration is the means whereby God literally speaks speaks the word of new life to you." and you are born again. You still see the world the same, or or your world is still the same, just like after that cold shower passes by, the, the home, the trees, everything is still the same, but the environment is entirely different. Perhaps you need this heart, your heart today, to be regenerated by the mercy of God in setting your eyes upon Jesus Christ, to see that salvation is in Him and not in your own righteousness. If this is the case, I urge you to look to Christ. I'd be more than willing to speak with you after our service to share more about the hope of Christianity and how Christ gives us new hearts. Are you tired of being disgusted with the world and the people around you? Maybe you need a new heart to come to Christ and find a love in Christ that causes all the evils of the world around you to seem pale in comparison with the love of Christ that is unending and always satisfying. In fact, the recommendation that I would have, perhaps if you are desirous to learn more about the Christian gospel, what we believe about how one comes to faith in Christ, if you're wrestling over this, perhaps try to read over Titus 3, verses 3-7 through 7 some this week. Just read it over and over and over. Maybe even work to commit it to memory. And dear Christians, as we hear this, when we are prone to join the angry refrain of the chorus of our world, full of anger and malice and envy and vitriol, may Titus 3, 3-7 cause us to swing sing a sweeter tune of praise to our triune God who has worked our salvation. God the Father setting us apart. Christ the Son appearing as goodness and grace personified and coming to us grace has a face and it is jesus christ and the holy spirit doing the work of regenerating us and setting us apart for new life that we might be justified as verse seven says by his grace in becoming heirs according to the hope of eternal life bitterness and anger towards others is rooted ultimately in a fear over an uncertain future or fear that those others are in fact harming or destroying our future Yet in the gospel, we find that we can become heirs of eternal life, a future that is secure in Christ, and that, this, that, that all of the forces that would seek our dismay in this life cannot rob us of that hope of eternal life. May we all know this hope. And may we all cling to this Christ to change our hearts towards the world around us. So our, that is our calling, care towards the, uh, towards, the, to the, towards the non-Christian world. Our ability is found not in ourselves, but is in the Gospel, is in God's work in us, changing our hearts. And then we have a warning that Paul gives us, a warning about conflict that is unfruitful. Paul says in verse 8, This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things So remember, Crete had a strong Jewish presence and influence, and the church may have been or may have been tempted to engage in all sorts of squabbles about Jewish heritage and and, and uh, uh, about Judaism and, and uh, things that were secondary matters. And in one sense, this is somewhat understandable. We believe that the gospel and the, the that the Bible changes our worldview and, and, and informs how we view all sorts of things. But in another sense, Paul says your neighbors don't need to hear what you think about secondary matters related to, in this case, their Judaism, but in our case, uh, matters of worldview relating to all sorts of things. Your neighbors need to see the love of Christ as revealed in the gospel. So think about our neighbors and think about the things that might invigorate you. There are all sorts of opinions that we can build based on God's word about economics, about immigration, about gun control, about medicine, about vaccines, about politics, about education, whatever it may be. But our goal with our non-Christian neighbors is to point them towards the love of Christ and not towards embracing our Christian worldview first and foremost. Maybe your next-door neighbor is a socialist. Your goal is not to convert them to capitalism. It is to lead them to Christ. Are we willing to do that? And what we have to understand is that the gospel... It's not the finish line by which somebody eventually, where they adopt the Christian worldview and start voting right and start doing everything and looking at the world exactly how we'd have them to look and then say, okay, now you are fit to come to Christ. No, the gospel is not the finish line. The gospel is the starting line. The gospel is where somebody comes to Christ in faith in him, bringing all of their verse 3, and then Christ begins to conform them more and more to his image. And newsflash for all of us. He is conforming all of us still to his image as he grows us in the faith. So we are all works of progress. I read a testimony I'm familiar with of one who has come to faith is a woman, some of you may be familiar with her, Rosaria Butterfield. She was, back in the 90s, she was in a lesbian relationship. She was a women's and queer studies professor at Syracuse University. And through the providence of God, she met a pastor and his wife, and this began a multi-year journey where they showed the love of Christ to her and they shared the gospel with her and she experienced bountiful care through them and this eventually ultimately led to her conversion to Christianity. And to hear Butterfield explain it, she would say that her lifestyle was not her greatest hindrance to becoming a Christian, it was her unbelief. And this is the condition for all who do not know Christ. And I think what Paul is getting at in our interactions with the world around us is that by our changed lives, By our unorthodox care for those who believe and practice and vote differently than us, we actually show the love of Christ to them and we invite them to one who is different from them yet welcomes them with a love that their heart has always clamored for. A gospel culture in our midst will be the fertile soil by which gospel proclamation grows and progresses the loudest. But this requires of us long suffering, patience, willingness to overlook the rough edges of those who come into our midst and do not yet know Christ. We have to be careful here and say, okay, Stephen, yeah, that might be easy for you, but I don't know if I can do that. We have to be careful with that kind of attitude because Paul says you better find the ability to do that. In fact, the ability to do that is tied up in becoming a Christian, it's tied up in the gospel. It is not how one becomes a Christian but it is evidence of the fact that someone is a Christian. And so Paul lays out here a strange uh, instruction here that is tied to church discipline for those who continue to give themselves to unneeded quarrels and division. Look at him. He says, um, verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And then he says, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Here's the seriousness of what Paul is getting at. If you can't seem to avoid conflict with those who have a different worldview than you, and that is the issue that drives your interactions with them, Paul is saying you may very well not even be a Christian. And he says, church, you have to take this serious enough that those in your midst who are given over to conflict after conflict after conflict, they need to be addressed with church discipline. Church discipline is simply the means by which a church, sadly, over the process of time, removes somebody from the membership of the church who, they, who had professed to being a Christian, but their life and their continued uh, 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 rejection of the word of God and of the calling of God upon them in the word seems to reveal that, in fact, they are not a Christian. Think of it like this. As we were returning home this week, We're coming in on approach, and we're flying over Boston Harbor, we're flying over the South Shore, and I'm seeing the beautiful beaches, and I'm seeing uh, wonderful sights. I'm thinking, all right, we're almost home. And I saw all the beautiful beaches, but then after we got home, I realized that for many of you, the beaches haven't been that quite beautiful lately, have they? They've had that red seaweed that's really smelly, and you can't even really go to the beach. Well, Paul's warning against churches that from a distance look nice and pleasant, but you get in their midst and they're just full of that nasty red seaweed of disagreement and dissension and and, and vile nature towards those who are different than them. Paul warns us against such an attitude. He says, if you can't help but engage with conflicts with those around you, then perhaps you don't know the prince of peace. Church family, let's commit to not being a people of griping and complaining, but to being a people of encouraging and uplifting. Let us be so serious about it that we recognize the seriousness by which God approaches it, and we are serious about pointing one another towards love and charity, towards each other, and towards those who are outside of our midst. Not agreeing or supporting or endorsing the things of this world, which God's word disagrees with, but pursuing a charitable spirit, and a heart of loving care for those whom God would bring across our path. On church discipline, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German uh, theologian, writes, nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to sin, and nothing can be more compassionate than that severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from that path of sin. We don't have the option to look at one another and say, oh, that's just so-and-so being so-and-so. We have, the op- we, have the op- uh, we have the responsibility to pursue one another towards hearts of love that are born out of the love of Christ that has been lavished upon us. And so, brothers and sisters, the question we ask as we begin to conclude is this. Will we engage with our world in conflict? Will we engage with our world in care? Knowing that detachment is not an option, You're not going to come live with me and we're not going to detach ourselves from this world. That leaves us with only two options, care or conflict. Paul lays out for us what the avenue must be. And then just for the sake of completion, let's read verses 12 through 15 and hear this exhortation from him one more time in verse 15 or 14, excuse me. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to spend to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith, and grace be with you all. Brothers and sisters, the power of the gospel at work in us must compel us towards uncommon care for our non-Christian neighbors and away from foolish conflict. This is born of the gospel's work within us. May Christ work his way through us and use us as his hands and feet, whereby others find the kindness of Christ in a world that they only know is cruel and is hard. May they come to Christ and find life through the witness of his church. Let's pray together. Oh God, you call us to something that in our human nature is not difficult, but it is impossible. And so we pray and we ask that you would give us the mercy to cling closely to Christ and to find in him, in his care, in his gentleness, the gentleness and a care that we can show towards our world. We ask this, Lord, by your mercy, setting our eyes upon Christ who showed his love for us and giving his life as a ransom for us, which we now remember this and we now remind ourselves of this and are partaking of the Lord's Supper. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Amen.